welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen. And this episode is another bonus episode where we talk to Paige Craig about syndicates. Um, Yeah, if you have listened to any episodes recently, you have heard me talk about the new BackstageCrowd.com syndicate, where we are sharing deal flow uh, and letting people co-invest with us to really uh, punch higher than our weight in Silicon Valley, I guess is the best way of saying it. Whereas we would be able to put in 25K, 50K, 100K checks into deals. Some deals um, will now be able to put in more like 250K or even more with our syndicate coming in and investing alongside us into the deals. So we have two tracks. One is an accredited investor only track where you would need to be an accredited investor based on uh, the SEC standards, which are today making $200,000 a year or $300,000 with your spouse or having a million plus in, in uh, assets other than your main home. We didn't make those up. They're just uh, what it is today, but hopefully they will change soon. I think a lot of people are working on making those change. Uh, and the other track is a non-accredited, attra- uh, non-accredited track where you don't have to have any of that, but you want to invest in companies. And so we'll we are um, showing people certain deals that are on other platforms that are not our internal platforms, but are from companies in our portfolio. So the last few episodes, if you miss them, give a lot more context to this. This episode I'm really excited about because I just interviewed Paige Craig. He is an investor. He's a venture capitalist. He's an angel. He's a lot of things. And uh, I first learned about Paige in 2015 before I had my fund during that time that you hear about a lot, actually. Um, I don't think he knows this, but I was living at the airport the day I met him. Um, I saw him speak, though, at the same place where I saw uh, the black panel, that investor panel and and entrepreneur panel that made me, that inspired me to write uh, Dear White Venture Capitalists on Medium. So this is 2015. What I know about Paige is that he's uh, kind of an adrenaline junkie and he lived in L.A. and he had this fund and he was doing syndicates on AngelList. And not only was he doing syndicates, but he was doing he was like number either one or two at any given time on their leaderboard of how much money was backing each deal in the syndicate how many people were willing to invest alongside him based on his judgment and his track record. So I just kept up with him because it was something, it was a a model that I loved and was very interested in. And so I'll talk to you more at a different time about how I first started out on AngelList five years ago anyway, Uh, but that's a different story. So today, Paige lives in Atlanta with his wife he is still investing and, and has a lot of insights on syndicates. If you have signed up at BackstageCrowd.com and are interested in learning more about syndicates or you are still on the fence, uh, this is going to be a great episode for you to listen to. I just recorded it moments ago, and Paige gives a lot, a lot, a lot of insights and examples of how syndicates have worked in his world now, he says he did 15 to 20 deals over a two-year period in 2015 on and um, has some stats and some names of companies that have gone on to do quite well. We also talk about risks involved and, and kind of how the process goes and what to expect a little bit more. So again, I've been talking to several of you I, I over the past few days. I know your interest level. I know some of you have already committed to our first deal. 
some of, uh, on the accredited uh, uh, channel and just so, so thrilled about this because I think we're going to really pack a punch with this syndicate. So without further ado, I want to introduce you or uh, have you meet again, Paige Craig. All right. Hey, Paige, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You know, day to day. Uh, where are you yep. these days? Where do you live these days? Because I, I, I learned about you and you first when you were in L.A. Are you still there? Yeah, yeah we're, I'm, I'm out in Atlanta. I think you and I actually met. I thought it was San Francisco back in the day at like a, we did. some kind of conference. Yeah, yeah we I met in San Fran, but I... I yeah, we met, at, we met in San Francisco in 2015 yeah. for the first time, but I knew about you as an L.A. investor. Yep. And so you're in Atlanta now. That is correct. We moved out here uh, 18 months ago. My wife is from the South, and we decided we want to have a good life, and we could invest from anywhere, so we came out here. That's great. Um and any reason for, so you said your wife is from the South. So that's where the, the draw was for that particular city. Yeah. It's just, it's just about, you know, being close to family. We, we want to raise our family around grandparents and, you know, cousins and nieces and, you know, all the stuff people want in life. And yeah. I fit in outdoors. I like, uh, you know, I like the outdoors. I like hunting. We have a beautiful house on the ocean. Um, I don't know. It's a good lifestyle out here. And you mentioned hunting, so I know some people are going to be uh, <laughs> curious. What What is your background briefly? I know you've told the story a million times, but for anyone who is just getting to know you and our audience, what is your background? Yeah, yeah I mean, I uh, I grew up in, so my family, my family from Pittsburgh, they left early and we were, we were homeless for a long time. We lived out of the back of a car. We were, we were, we were those shifty people that <laughs> lived off the road and, would crash in empty lots and lived on the side of the river. And so my, I'm very close to my grandma, Jean. She's in San Luis Obispo now. She might, made my parents, I was, I was getting old enough where I should go to school, and they made my parents put me in school. Um, so they, I, my grandma said she gave my dad like a couple hundred bucks or something. And so we stopped in Sacramento, and we, we basically took over an abandoned house on the river. And we lived there until like fifth grade. And I mean, this house had nothing. It was from the 1800s. It was no utilities. We had a pot belly stove. I, mean, I remember we had this little pot belly stove in the like sunken out wood rotten living room that would keep us warm. But you know, as, as sad as that sounds, we had a good life. We, I think back then, since you didn't have the internet and we didn't even have TV, all you know is what's you know within I don't know 10, 20 blocks of you. So we were all the same people. Um, it, was, it was pretty fun life. Well, Dolly Parton says she didn't know she was poor. She didn't when growing up. That's all she knew. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the hard thing about Instagram nowadays, right? You know exactly where you fit in the social strata. That's for sure. And then what what happened after that? Because I know you had a you have a military background of some sort. To yeah. make it a little different. Yeah, I just I you know I worked hard. I, I got lucky, and I got. Um, I volunteered young on a political campaign. They got me into uh, the state capitol, and that led me to meeting a senator who put me into West Point. And um, even though I realized I wasn't a good fit for West Point, it led me to going into the Marine Corps. And after that, I moved into the intelligence community uh, with the Iraq War, Second Iraq War. I started um, a private military company. I realized, or I guessed, 
that I could build a large or I could build something interesting in the military space. Um, I didn't know anything about business, but uh, I tried to raise some money. No one would back me, so I went to Navy Fed. I put my house underwater, got, got a loan, a second loan against my house. I could buy weapons and, and equipment and hire some folks downrange and ended up being a good company. We did uh, did like $30 million in contracts the first year and close to $100 million the next and kind of off to the races and um, did that for a while and eventually sold the business many years later and, and ended up through a long series of events becoming an angel investor. Um, look at, look at no eight and then actually started pulling the trigger in 09. And, and that jump into tech investing is what led to you and me meeting many years ago. Yeah. Because you were, you were uh, an angel investor. You had a fun, a side fund, I think it was 40 million or so. Yep. And I re- I just remember like, you know, this, it was sort of uh, folklore. You, you, you came across in any article that I read as like this mountain man, you know, like bear the, whatever the guy is, who's like can climb anything. So I just always expected you to fell into a building and, and kind of, you were like like GI Joe kind of guy. Is that how you felt or feel? Or do you think that that was sort of, that sort of uh, narrative was, was built around you? I'm very adventuresome. So I know, I like to have fun. You know, my wife doesn't enjoy it as much, but I will, I like the thrill of trying new things. So I, you know, I rock climb and snowboard extreme and scuba dive and travel the world to risky places. So I I get why people, you know, it's like, uh, I I live on the edge, you know, I take the highest risk investments. I, you know, I used to do some pretty high risk activities and I don't know, that's just, uh, I'm comfortable with risk. Yeah. Well, let's talk about risk when it comes to investing. What are, just to sort of set the stage for our conversation, what are some investments you made early on that people might recognize and that have maybe gone on to do well? Yeah, no, I've done quite a few, you know, Wish, Lyft, Postmates, Gusto, Twitter, you know, Scale, um, Clover, you know, I've done quite yeah. a few early stage deals that folks would, would recognize. Yeah. And, uh, Angel AngelList, um, you know, did some later stage, you know, SPVs into uh, Tesla and, and Clover Health, which is a multi billion dollar digital health insurance business that we got in super pretty early. So, you know, lots of interesting stuff out there. Yes. And for our purposes, with, th- with this, because I know you're an entire book, have you written a book? Do you have a book out? By any chance? No, I don't have. No, well, no, I, I spend most of my time. I spend most of my time. You know, I think probably the time I would spend writing, I spend talking. Like I did uh, two mentor calls today. Uh, I, I do. I, I prefer to. I don't know. Maybe I should write. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe I, think I should, you should write. But I like. I, I like talking to folks too, instead of doing the one on one. I mean, the the fact that we can just use your name page alone with books, I mean, there's already marketing being written for you, you know, it's already there. Uh, but absolutely, I think you would have like, a, you have like a Jesse, Jesse uh, Itzler, I can't pronounce his, I don't know what his last name is, but just that you'd have that kind of following or uh, can't hurt me uh, following. I just, it's just a side note. I think that, I think that it would work <laughs> out. But um uh, you, for our purposes, we're talking about syndicates mostly because yep. backstage 
uh, crowd.com is out now. And a lot of people listening right now will be either interested in what we're doing with our syndicate at Backstage and that Arlen was here um, investments, or they would have already signed up and be actively participating either as an accredited investor or a non-accredited investor. We have two lanes going. So one of the people, the first people I reached out to was, was you, was Paige Craig, because you were for several years uh, as I was studying ventures, I was studying multiple asset classes and ways of doing things and getting capital to underrepresented founders. One of the stories that I paid close attention to was your story because you were always doing things your way. And also you were quite active, to say the least, on AngelList with syndicates. Can you talk a little bit about that first mm-hmm. the first wave of syndicates that really became popular and, and where what you saw as an opportunity there? Yeah, you know, I, I was like, I remember Angelus when it was literally an email list and, and like a spreadsheet that Naval would sit around. I think I was the first or second investor. And, and even pre investing, we'd go around and, and talk at events about Angelus to promote it. I love the concept because it struck me that this whole adage, the rich get richer, is very true. And, you know, you can, the government will let you go out and spend stupid money on a car lease and a bad, like all kinds of bad deals. But, you know, if you want to go out and make some smart money decisions, the government has decided that you are not smart enough to do that if you don't have a million dollars essentially in liquid wealth or don't have a big enough salary, right? So it struck me that syndicates, whether AngelList or Backing You, is, is, and, and crowdfunding in general is a great way, provided the folks who are deploying the capital are good people like yourself and like Naval and the AngelList leaders, it's a great way for the average person to start to participate in investing in technology. I mean, you don't want all your money packed into stocks and not everything should be in real estate and it should always be small, right? Whenever I talk, like if you're going to do tech, just realize this, this is high risk stuff, but it doesn't have to be dumb. When people say I'm gambling, I'm betting. That's the wrong word. I mean, you don't bet. Do you Arlen? No, not, not in tech companies, right? I'm I mean, not in tech companies. This, table. <laughs> I tell yeah. you so why, even betting. more so, even more so because it is just so hard won this capital that I've been uh, raising and deploying, yeah. you know, it's, it's almost yeah. like saying to a, uh, just to go a little weird, bit weird with it. It's almost saying like, you know, as a, as a lesbian, I'm not going to have an accidental pregnancy. So if my partner and I decide to have a baby, there's a lot involved in it that's what i feel like with each investment that i make because yeah, there's it's, so it's much purposeful right yeah yeah so you saw this as an opportunity uh for i guess for both accredited and non-accredited I, depending on what platform yeah I, well i saw it as an opportunity for two things you know one of the one of the reasons i love fintech is that i think technology could be one of those big disruptors that provides opportunity to those who need capital both in the sense of you know, the mom and pop investor out of Detroit or Atlanta, wherever they might be, giving them the ability, even if it's a thousand bucks a year, a couple thousand bucks a year that they want to throw into tech over a 20 year period. If they put that behind the right syndicates, they could, and obviously we never promised it, but you could see those stupid multiples that we see as investors and that I have seen personally. I know that's life changing for people, right? Not all your money should be going into your bank account to earn interest and not all of this should go in the stock market or real estate, a little slice of that, you know, if you can stomach the risk should be thrown as something high risk like tech, in my opinion. 
And it could go into managers like yourself or another Angelist syndicate, and they could see maybe a 5, 10, 20x on those deals. You know, no guarantees. And then for the founder on the other side, that founder who maybe wouldn't get the opportunity from First Round Capital or myself or Sequoia or whoever it is, maybe they come from an untraditional background. Or maybe like, you know, you think me, like I'm a white guy who had every visual advantage you could have when I tried to raise from my company. No one would bet on me. I didn't come from any kind of money, and I didn't have even moderately wealthy friends. I had to talk to colonels. Like the most, the richest people I knew my, in my world were colonels, and they wouldn't invest in me. So, a, a lot of us don't have access to capital when we're starting out. So, I thought of syndicates as a way for founders to get access to capital, and for average people to see some of those returns that rich folks get access to. And we'll talk about the kind of granular details, but overall, if someone someone were to stop right now and just you know have to go and do something, do you do you are you happy that you did the syndicates? Are you happy that you led them and were one of the the largest syndicates? I guess uh, on AngelList was it an overall good experience? Yeah, it was an overall great experience. I, I stopped because the tools that I wanted, you know, I became a very active uh, syndicate leader, and I didn't get. I'd say the tools, because we are also running, we deployed uh, about 60, a little over $60 million out of our fund, and we didn't deploy all the money we had. We probably had close to 80 or 90 there, but we deployed 60-some million there. So it was a lot of work on our part to run a syndicate, and the tools weren't there to make it easy for us. So we kind of at one point had to choose one or the other, and we chose to focus on our fund. Yeah. But for those years that you did run the syndicate, and let's just, you know, take Angelus off the table just in general, because we we are running off of Angelus. We're running on our own platform um, using okay. some of the yeah, back end. Like you can do it. You can do it anywhere you want. Yeah. So so just for the for those who are listening, who are just thinking, why would I be in a syndicate? Like, why would I be a syndicate member? Why would I uh, like can you talk a little bit about maybe an example of a deal that you got in and you allocated some capital? for others to get in. Cause I think here's, here's what I want to get across is that I think some people think that we're asking people to invest in us instead of understanding that we, we we're getting really great terms on an awesome deal that we like and that we don't know if it's going to go to zero or not, but we like it enough to think that it'll do well. And we're like sort of carving out an amount that others can pile on to. So could you explain that a little bit since you did it so much? Yeah, basically, you know, when you're a syndicate, if you're the one leading it, you basically have figured out that there's a great deal to do. You got the founder to give you the right to invest some amount of money in their deal. And then you and and the syndicate you put together all kind of pile your cash together. And you all put it in a bucket and that bucket goes into the company. And then years later, when that company makes money, if that company makes money, they give you back two, three, four times your money, and you hand it out to each person that had money in the bucket, and they get there three, four times. Now, in my own experience, you know, we did a uh, investment, a pretty sizable check, uh, eight hundred and some odd thousand dollars early on into a company that ClassPass bought, and we kept our shares in ClassPass even through the hard times, and hopefully they make it through this cycle. But it's been up and down, but that um, that investment is up dramatically compared to other assets out there. And you, you know, it's a unique way for the average person to get into big deals that they would never have been able to get into. You imagine like how would an average person get into class pass? It just wouldn't happen. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even know a door to knock on much less know if that door would get open for them. Right. 
And and talk a little bit about it because you just described something that seems like it was a few years ago that it started. What do people need to understand about the time horizon and their and their risk tolerance and illi- sorry illiquidity? Well, it depends what what you're doing. So when you look at a syndicate, you should probably ask the founder or the syndicate lead these questions because they could you could do a syndicate into a late stage company where you might be seeing money coming back to you in two to three years, or you could be doing a really early bet and that money might not be coming back to you for like eight to 12 years. So yeah. it could be in general, it's, it's years usually. Right. And and the minimum is usually two to three, but sometimes it could be as long as 10 or 12 years. Like think how long it takes for some of these companies to get out there and go public or get acquired. Yeah. And we're doing a combination. We're doing opportunistic plays, uh, a lot of follow on into our current uh, investments that we would have already made at their pre-seed or seed stage. And they're doing well or, um, you know, it's so it's going to it's really going to run the gamut and it has already. And but that tolerance is there. And and can you give an example of a company you can't you can talk about publicly that maybe has already um, shown multiples that was through the syndicate? Uh, yeah, you know, we did Produce Pay, which was a, uh, you know, it was a third generation. I guess he was he was from third generation, so fourth generation Mexican farmer. Uh, got his MBA in America. Created a company called Produce Pay, and back in the day, it was a crazy idea that he would create a platform to essentially do payday loans for farmers, but based on the produce in the ground and complicated system, but, uh, bottom line, you know, wake up five years later and he just closed, uh, $200 million a few months ago and the business, you know, I can't talk about the exact numbers, but the business is doing incredibly well compared to the minuscule valuation that we invested in, um, you know, just five years ago. Yeah. And in those cases, I, I've heard, you know, Jason Calacanis and others, I've heard you talk about this too, where you, you know, the syndicate lead, depending on the terms and everything in the relationship, you'll make a decision like a few years in to, to shed 10, 20% as you go. At least that's a, a strategy I've seen some people do just to kind of recoup a little bit as you go. Is that something that you've done? I haven't done it for any of our, I don't believe we've done it. I have to look at every syndicate deal. I don't remember us doing it for any of our syndicate deals, but I have done it in the past with companies. Um, you know, the earliest idea was Clout. Uh, it was a company that eventually failed, but surprisingly enough, I put uh, put like a hundred something thousand dollars into it early, and when it was being overvalued, I got uh, I pulled like two two and a half million dollars out by selling some of my position uh, in a very lofty big VC round and basically protected my downside. And I did similar things around um, Wish and Gusto and Postmates. I took some of my position off to de-risk myself. I haven't done it for syndicates, but there's no reason you can't. There's a there's a fairly active secondary community out there now. So if you got something hot, a syndicate lead could always sell some or all their position early. Yeah. And I think it's important to understand, too, because that is something that we would look at. But it's important to understand that when you're a syndicate member and you're putting in X amount in a a larger pot, sometimes you do just have to go along with what the syndicate. Most times you have to go along with what the syndicate lead is is suggesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very passive investment (laughs) in that way. Yeah. And that's also the nice thing, right, is they, you know, you and I have to do all that work and talk to the founders and make smart decisions. And 
but I have had syndicate uh, followers kind of ask me if they can get liquidity. And I'm just like, you know, I, I, I can't sell one person's position when I'm looking out for 80, 90 different people. That's right. That's right. So it's important to think about it. If you're listening to this, um, those types of things are, are, are part of the risk. I heard you, I guess I saw a tweet once where you said that um, at one point, you know, you would put a syndicate out and it would just be full. The deal would be done in, in matter of moments. Oh, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Give a couple examples. You don't have to say the names, but like, give me a little insight as to how quickly those started um, being put together and, and, and how many syndicate members were part of the syndicate to make that happen. You know, we did, um, I have to guess here, I have to look at my list of how many we did total, but I think maybe we did 15, 20 total. Generally speaking, we would have a syndicate filled within one, one to two days, you know, up to about a million dollars. Incredible. And Incredible. And but we just, you know, but part of it was having a following, right? Um, it was, it was when, when I did my syndicate, uh, I had already, I think by this point, it would have been 2015. So I had five, six, seven years, you know, I had like six, seven years of investing experience on the tip belt and had probably done 60, 65 individual deals and roughly 75 total because I did some follow on. So, I had a bit of experience and I had a network and I've been a very active, um, every, every time I meet people, I keep a little file on them and notes and I, I put meta tags around them, such as whether they're an angel or a VC and I make notes about how I met them and what they're interested in. So when I want to go do something, it's very easy for me to send out an email blast or tweet yeah. people or you know, it's, it's like, there's lots of things I can do to sort of build up a following when I'm going to do something new. Yeah. And with us, we have about 1200 people have signed up. Half of them are accredited, you know, self self identifying and going through a process of confirming and a couple hundred have already been confirmed. We have another 600 who are not accredited yet, uh, either because they will one day be or uh, that the definition of accredited will change. And that's what I hope happens. I've been working on that. But um, so how many people were like part of your list? Cause I, I don't remember those numbers. If you could just like ballpark it, like how many people were vying for a spot at the time for a hundred spots today? Oh. It's 250. Yeah. You know, I, we probably had, when we first started, you know, we built the list up over and over. You, essentially the way a syndicate would work is you hit everyone up and you say, Hey, give me a sense of what your average check's going to be and what your sort of, and you tell them what your minimum is and, you say what the max is. Uh, I think we started with maybe, I'm guessing probably 50 or 60 folks signed up in the first few days of us putting a syndicate together. And within a few months, I think we had somewhere around a couple hundred folks where the average check size meant that we could do, we could probably pull together like two and a half, $3 million just through a syndicate. Just really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And I, and I think I don't take my legal advice on this, but I'm, I feel like you had an LP limit that was somewhere around 99 individuals for SPV. If I was right back it, then, it's, it's 250 so, now it's 250 now. Okay. Yeah. I think back then we were limited to 99. So, you know, we kind of looked and said, okay, if we're raising, you know, a million bucks and we can take it from a hundred folks, the, the math's pretty easy. We need to, you know, just divide this out and, and that would be the min. 
And then sometimes we do flexible. If we realize we're getting closer and we want to give opportunities to other folks, we'd say, okay, you don't have to commit 10,000. You can commit five because we're, we're close enough now that we can lower the barrier a little bit. Yeah. 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 Talk about, um, well, actually how many, uh, you said you think you did about 15 or 20 of those over time? I feel like we, yeah, I feel like over, because we only did the syndicates for a period of like two years and then it just became too burdensome to do that and the, and the fund at the same time. Yeah. Understood. Understood. And, um, how do you, how do your, or how have your syndicate members reacted to losses, reacted to a, a company shutting down that they, that they put money in? Uh, we haven't had a problem yet. You know, we've had a few, I'd say in the grand over probably 15 syndicates, we have an average of, I'm guessing 50 to hundred, let's say 80 folks. Right. So we're dealing with like, I don't know how many discrete folks are in there, but let's say it's, it's probably a few hundred people. I've never had anyone upset uh, about a company shutting down or not doing well, but I have had people ask lots of questions about why they're not getting like updates on how the company's doing and what's going on. This is one of those areas that's different because if you read about LP and that person is essentially an LP, a limited partner, Generally, an LP gets access to what's happening with a company. So if you're a fund that invests in Uber, and then you're an LP in the fund that invests in Uber, that LP wants to know, like, hey, how's Uber doing, you know, pre-IPO? And you'd say, you give an update, you know, usually once a year and say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's our thought in the market. When you're running a syndicate, generally speaking, you unless you're doing a big syndicate, you may not have the information rights. And we tell folks very clearly up front that, look, you're not going to have information rights. These are private companies. They don't want their revenues and their metrics shared. And you're going to be a little bit blind for a while. And in some cases, we will have access, but our syndicate members will not have information rights. And they've agreed to that up front. And that, that caused heartburn for maybe know, three, four people over, over all the years. So it really hasn't been a big issue. But we were very you know, we had big disclaimers up front. We wrote a paragraph about what you wouldn't get access to and remind people every time they wrote checks that this is not something where we're going to tell you what's going on. And it's not that we don't trust LPs. The problem is that there's so many folks out there and these companies don't want their revenues or their metrics being tweeted or shared. So we just have a very, and I can't be biased and say, well, I trust Bill, but I won't tell Susan. So we just have to have a one rule fits all methodology of saying we don't share with anybody. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's, it's what we're, we've been very diligent in explaining, but I, I have a feeling because we're so new, I have a feeling we're going to be saying that for a very long time, but it is, it's absolutely right. It's, it's different. It's a limited thing. And you go back to the idea of, yes, it's a little frustrating, but at the same time, would you have been able to get into the deal otherwise? And if the answer is no, then that's kind of the give and take of it. What would you say is the right percentage of someone's liquidity or their net worth or however you measure it, that they should be putting into tech, uh, startup investments in general or could be, I know you're not a, you're not a broker dealer or anything. I'm, I'm not, look, Just your I'm, I'm opinion. Not, like, I'm not, I'm not a financial advisor, but I think what makes sense is, you know, you got to look at your age, look at your obligations. And so it's different. Like if you're talking to a 25 year old, uh, girl who's making 150 grand as a consultant somewhere. I'm going to stop you, Paige. And, I'm going to stop you. A 25 yeah. year old woman. Keep going. 
I think if you got a 25 year old woman making $150,000 and, and she's got no kids, no one to take care of, she's renting cheaply. She's got very low expenses and she's a big, you know, she's a big earner. She should probably take a little bit more risk if she's got the tolerance and I don't know, like maybe put 10 K a year into doing some tech deals, maybe put 20, you know? Yeah. And, but then again, if I was dealing with the same, let's say she's married and, you know, her and her husband together earn, let's say, uh, 200 grand a year, but they got two kids and maybe parents they're taking care of and they've moved to a more expensive city and, you know, they really can only save maybe, you know, put away five grand a year into savings. I'd probably say, you know, maybe, maybe put a grand a year into this. I don't know. Like I, I yeah. have to get, sit down and think, but, but the point is, you know, when you're younger in life um, and you can be more aggressive, you know, with, if you're making a good salary and if you're, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, and you've got a little savings and you're still making money and you're still an earner and you've been responsible, you know, it depends on your risk threshold. Um, but generally it's not a big chunk of your wealth. It's, I don't know, I'm guessing it's probably, let's say less than 5% of your wealth should be going into this. Yeah. I, I set it at like five to 10%, depending on your risk tolerance and depending on what percentage of that, of that, um, you know, goes into direct deals and syndicates. Yeah. And, and also depends like if you, it also depends like if you, uh, if you come into a pile of cash, whether you inherit it, you get a big bonus, um, you sell your, you know, you sell your business, your company, whatever, you come into a pile of cash, then you enter into this new world where I've seen people say, you know, I'm putting 20% in the venture, right? Like I'm in my twenties, I'm in my thirties. I'm willing to take the risk. I know I'm walking into, I've seen people put 20 plus percent of their wealth into venture. And, you know, if they know what they're doing, if they're picking syndicates and funds to back, that can be a really smart strategy. Yeah, and it can be fun too. Even even though you have the limited invest um, uh, information rights, and you can't really control the narrative, the 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 time you spend looking at the deals and making decisions and and working with other people on the deals, I mean, that's fun. It's fun to me. I don't know if it's fun to everybody, but I, I would imagine. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. I think it's fun. I also think it. You can take the impact perspective, which is you know, sure. let's say you're someone who sure. donates every year, and you donate 10% of your, you know, of your, uh, income, wealth, whatever, however you say it. And you're putting 10% into something you believe in. Let's say half of it goes to the environment and half of it goes to black lives matter or female code, whatever is your personal mission in life. Well, one of my thoughts, I've always been a huge believer that even when I'm doing deals and they're not working, the great thing about seed stage investing is like, look, I'm, I'm investing entrepreneurs. I will, if there's a charity, a cause, I will, I love it's. I love entrepreneurship. I think it's one of those things that advances the world, especially if I can say it can make me money and that thing that they're doing might change the world. Yeah. But let's, but that's also where I see folks who are saying, look, I want to promote, you know, uh, Latino founders in, you know, in Texas, or I want to promote black founders. And I see these people out there saying, Hey, why are you doing a, a fund that's only going to invest in black founders or female founders or wh- whatever you've picked? And it's like, look, it, if someone's putting their money into something they believe in and, and they're doing charity, you would never question someone putting their money behind like uh, something that supports, you know, uh, black children that need food or building schools in uh, Mexico. You wouldn't criticize that, but then someone decides to do impact investing. 
and suddenly people are up in arms that they've chosen to put their money behind something that's good that might also make them money. And I just, I don't get that. Right. It's like, so you're okay if they put their money into charity to help folks, but if they go and invest in disadvantaged or underrepresented founders, you feel like that's weird. Right. Yeah, you know I, think, I think part of it is is what people's impressions, you know, these same biases of what a black person or or whatever would would be. And it's easier for people to reconcile. Oh, well, they need charity. They need help. Then to think, oh, well, they're a thriving company. They're an interesting company that just needs you know, more level footing. And, you know, they, they may make some money for me. I, I definitely have had those conversations with people where they may even have like good intentions but they've just put underrepresented founders into a bucket that they cannot get out of they just cannot take it out of that uh but it, it takes yeah. a little bit of, of of shaking up the industry and shaking things up and, and much the way that I, I i know that you are doing and it takes a perspective like you know, you seem to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you seem to be a very competitive person, like a, good, like a competitive person, and you're, you're doubling down on, on underrepresented founders, you know? And so it, it's not just philanthropic. It's I can, I can support this growing ecosystem and maybe make some money, you know? Like, there's nothing wrong well, with that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I am, I mean, I'm, I'm a fucking competitor. I mean, I'm a hardcore competitor. I am ruthless, but I'm not a, uh, I don't like the solo wins. I like the team wins. So for me, it's like, uh, I do believe in hardcore competition uh, and not in the sense of just beating people all the time, but I love competition from the sense that it elevates us. When you know that you're in a fair fight with someone else who wants to win, yep. your performance, you're, <laughs> when you're out there, whether it's racing uh, doing deals, you know, dance, it doesn't matter what you do, but when you compete with someone else who respects competition as much as you do, it elevates your game. Right. And so it's not just the win. It's the fact that you are elevated in the win, whether you win or lose. Yes. So I, I do love, and I personally enjoy winning, but I love, I would say, I like the competition. Like my body, my soul thrives on competition and our society thrives on, you know, equal competition. So I, I love that. Um, and, and I do, and that's the thing that bothers me about um, besides the fact that, you know, bigotry and racism and all this shit about just every sex, gender, race, like beyond the fact that shit's just stupid uh, and ignorant and offends me to my soul. If you're also a competitor, you're like, don't you feel like you want those folks that have been disadvantaged in this competition to be lifted up and given equal footing and to bring them into the game? Don't you want to see them the best black sounders, the best female founders? Don't you want them in the game with you? I mean, that's a word. That's a word. And I'm going to leave it there because I think it's the best place to leave it. Um, I, I know that your time is valuable and I have enjoyed so much this conversation and I think it's going to be incredibly helpful and enlightening to a lot of people. And that, that's it. What you just said is it, I, you know, I've said in the past that the only reason I can imagine that um, like traditional quote unquote white investors wouldn't be putting their capital uh, into, into underrepresented founders is that they, do, they can't take the competition that that would foster that they don't think they would win. And, you know, it's, it's just something to think about it. You know, whether you agree with that or not, it's something to think about. Oh, I'm, and, I mean, 
you can you can see it when you see voters disenfranchisement. That's called fear, right? Yeah. All people are trying to do is voter disenfranchisement as well as you know right. these uh, so-called like employer channels that aren't actually free. like it's called fear and, and and you know you're never gonna get people to admit to it, but you know <laughs> there there's there's a lot of fear there I think stopping folks and and the reality is. I don't know. It just life is going to be better if we start if we just keep kicking these barriers down. Yes. How can people keep up with you, Paige, these days? Uh, let's see. Well, I'm on. You know, I'm I'm in most of the social media, but probably Twitter. Uh, I'm fairly active on Twitter when I feel like there's something. Um, I'm starting a new fund, so I've been a little bit heads down. I'll be announcing it uh, probably sometime in August. And I'll probably get more active on Medium and some other places, and I'll probably start doing some podcasts and sharing my thoughts. But I, uh, I'll also have a website at outlanderlabs.com where founders in the South and folks that want to mentor founders in the South can come track me down. But that's not live yet, so if you go there, it'll just be an empty slate. All right. So Outlander Labs and also Paige Craig on Twitter. Is that the handle? I think it's, yeah, I think it's Paige Craig, at Paige Craig on Twitter. <laughs> You're invested in Twitter, right? <laughs> well, I'm out of it now. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. I bet, I bet that was a good time. All right, thank you so much, Paige. You, you've been so, so helpful, and I, you made me even more excited about the syndicate than I already was, which is pretty impossible. Well, thank you. I wish you much success, Arlen. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.